As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and I am thrilled, genuinely thrilled, to get to talk about this week's Champions League games. We had late goals, late equalizers, defensive howlers, crazy officiating moments, players flooding the pitch, and a European giant on the verge of elimination, and that is just from Barcelona v. Inter. Joining me to talk about that game and many, many more are two wonderful fellas. First up, Joe Lowry. Good early morning to you, my mountain time zone friend. Good mid to late, nah, mid-morning. Good mid-morning to you, Taylor, on the East Coast. Uh, thank you for that. I, I got the time zone correct. Graham Ruthven, good afternoon to you, my checking notes, British summer time zone friend? Yeah, who knows? Who knows? It's three <laughs> o'clock here. I, I, I'm always that amazed at how Americans know which uh, time zone. I think Greenwich mean time for most of the year, and then it's British summertime, even though it's not summer. Yeah, let's yet. talk We're about We're a weird country. Uh, according to weather.com, it's currently 57 degrees uh, in Glasgow and raining with a low of 48. Is that what constitutes summertime? Is that why Rangers look so depressed yesterday? I was going to say, it is still summertime. I, I, I hadn't checked the weather outside. <laughs> oh, boy. It- Okay, at the risk of having a whole weather chat here, Graham, what is a, like a, a Glaswegian summer? What is like a nice day? So I always say Scottish summertime is the worst season of the year. I complain about this to my wife a lot. And the reason that I think that is Scottish summertime isn't a real summertime. So I like sunshine. I'm actually pretty good at dealing with heat. But Scottish summer is basically you going outside in a jacket deciding you're too warm for a jacket, taking off your jacket and then deciding you're too cold for a t-shirt and putting the jacket back on and just being sweaty while you're walking. That is basically Scottish summertime (laughs) while it is drizzling rain on you at the same time. Arizona summertime is like that. Arizona summertime is like that, except without the jacket. And as soon as you stepped outside, you immediately regret every choice you've ever made. So I think it's pretty similar, Graham. It sounds basically the same. Yeah. Yeah, that is the same. Uh, cool. So Graham's is purgatory and Joe's is when you look upon the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, that, Correct. That's what that sounds like to me. That's <laughs> that's a Raiders of the Lost Ark reference for Joe, who is... I'm, I'm going to... Joe was definitely not alive when that movie came I've out. Let's just keep it moving. I don't want to... I've seen, I don't it. I've seen it, Taylor. Come on. 
All right, that's good. All right, there we go. We found one. Uh, let's talk about this week's games instead of uh, movies that Joe has seen. Let's go to Catalonia, where Barcelona got an excellent individual performance from Robert Lewandowski, the opposite of that from Busquets and Piquet. Joe, I thought this was one of the most fun games I've watched this season, especially as a neutral. Did you have a good time with this one, too? Oh, yeah. I started this game late, and I had caught up by the time... The, basically, we were maybe 15 minutes into the second half, and so I'm watching it, and it's close, right? It's a bit of a nail-biter. Barcelona need to win this game to give themselves a, a much better chance of making it out of the group. And then Inter go up, and so it's 2-1 after Lautaro Martinez gets a goal in the 63rd minute. And I kind of think, okay, this one might be done. And then my mentality almost immediately shifted when Robert Lewandowski gets his goal in the 82nd minute to there could actually be five more goals in this game because yeah. everything was happening all at once. My, uh, my Fubo... I had a recording, and for some reason, I think the game had gone past the two-hour mark that that the screen had allotted or whatever, however this works behind the scenes with Fubo. And so I ended up missing like a five-minute chunk that I had to go back and watch later. And in that five-minute chunk, both of the second goals, so both, I mean, both of the, the third goals, I guess, for each team had been scored. So Inter had scored, and it's 3-2, and then I come back, and right away, I see Robert Lewandowski put the ball in the back of the net in the 92nd minute, 93rd minute, whatever it was, and it's 3-3. I thought there was more in this game by then, even without a, a fifth goal for each team or a fourth goal yeah. for each team. Man, this game was awesome. Not at all what Barcelona needed out of this match. It is exactly what Inter, or one of the things that Inter was looking for here. But man, such a great, great Champions League group stage game. The, the final 10 minutes of this match in particular were absolutely wild and probably the best 10 minutes of, of soccer that I've watched so far this season. Not necessarily the, the highest quality soccer because no, no. it was a, it was a bit of a mess from both teams and, and Lewandowski said after the game that Barcelona were so focused on scoring that they forgot what, I'm, I'm paraphrasing slightly but not too much, they forgot what was happening in defence which sums up their performance as a whole, and it wasn't just Barcelona either. Inter Inter played their part in that final ten minutes, and even after they got back, pegged back to 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 three three, they were still flooding players forward. And I'm thinking a draw is a great result for them. You know, a, a draw still means all they need is a, is a win at home to Victoria Pilsen to qualify for the last sixteen and to knock Barcelona out of the of the of the Champions League. Yet they were sending four or five players forward in, in attack, and it was bizarre because. Inter had played such a, a, a disciplined match up until then, but it, it was as if they'd recognised Barcelona were completely there for the taking and, and they just couldn't help themselves. And, and, and I still can't believe that Aslani didn't square it yeah. for Mkhitaryan in those final few minutes because that would have been game over for Barca. Yeah, for people who didn't see that, Graham, can you do a quick summary of just how bad of a moment that was for him? Yeah, so basically Aslani ends up in behind the, the Barcelona defence. I think maybe there's one Barcelona defender and then obviously the, the goalkeeper. And he has Mkhitaryan on his, on his left, square to him. And the obvious play is to roll it across the face of goal where Mkhitaryan would finish into the empty net from maybe even less than six yards. But for some reason he hesitates and maybe the, the, the Barcelona defender distracts him, but he hesitates and then he decides to kind of take the, sh the shot on at the near post and Ter Stegen makes the save. And as I say, if he just rolled that across the goal, Mkhitaryan would have scored Inter's fourth goal very late in stoppage time and that probably would have been that. I think I would have known to, to square that ball. But with that said, this is another game that reminds me why I am not meant to be a professional football manager. Because I so often get frustrated when managers change up their approach mid-game or when they're up 2-1 to one with 30 minutes to go and they want to see it out, but then they give momentum back to their opponent. In this game, it felt like Inter were trying to do the opposite of that. If we're not going to change our game plan at all, we're going to keep playing our game and we're going to take it to Barca. And that obviously works, as you said, Graham, with, with them getting goals. But on the mm. flip side, they also 
also just had no chill about them. There's a 10-minute period in which it seemed like Barca would score three or four because Inter just kept giving them the ball back. And I think... Ultimately, what I come away with is that this game was just so fun because it was two teams who both n- knew they needed to get something out of it, different somethings, but they both wanted to get something here, and both were playing with that level of intensity of we've got to make something happen, but also the nerves that come with that of, oh no, what happens if we let them do something, and both of them having those shaky moments combined with the technical precision that we would see occasionally made this just an all-around excellent game. So, Joe, maybe we should talk about some individuals then uh, with Inter or with Barca, whichever one you want to go with. Who stood out to you from this one on an individual level in a good way, I should add? Oh, you you really changed up what I was about to say about to say there, Taylor. <laughs> um, we'll start with Robert Lewandowski then if we're talking about things that, that worked yeah. well for Barcelona. He's huge for them, right? As it turns out, and, and shock me if this is, stop me if this is too crazy, but it turns out that having, right now, I would say the second best number nine in the world on your team helps you score goals and helps you put the ball in the back of the net. The the header that Lewandowski has in this game is so good, right? I mean, it's the third goal for Barcelona. It's in stoppage time. It is like a textbook header. And then you have the goal before that in the 82nd minute that gets Barca level at 2-2 that really gets them back in this game to get the three points that they needed here. And it is just like a, a beautiful moment of composure. The shot is is strong after he heads it initially and Inter can't clear it. Having Robert Lewandowski in this team has transformed Barcelona. At this point in the year, as good as I think Barcelona are in possession, and as good as I thought they were on the whole in the first half, they were dominant in that first half, completely dominant. I thought they had this game in the bag. And and as it turns out, when you have some of the defensive personnel, Taylor, I know you said that you, I had to talk about nice things, so I'm going to stop no, my don't. thought here. You can talk about whatever you want. Okay, Barcelona's defending was was really bad in the second half. PK, yeah. uh, the memes are good on Twitter right now. Let's just put it that way. The PK memes are really, really good. I, I honestly don't know what Barcelona are doing in a couple of these different defensive moments. Really, all three of the goals that they concede are these pretty observable and obvious errors. So the first one is Barella in the 50th minute. Inter have this bit of radar possession in the final third. The 50th minute is still at a phase in this game. Fellas, when when Inter are doing nothing in the attack, or they're doing very, very little in the attack. So Inter get this rare moment in the final third. And Bastoni, who is epic, by the way, one of my favorite players to watch right now. This dates back to last season as well. Long, lanky center back who drives the ball forward. Bastoni hits a, a diagonal ball into the box. Barella just receives it in behind. Barcelona's three men at this point sort of makeshift back line. PK is way deeper than the rest of the back line. Like, yeah. he doesn't even see Barella. I, th- I think that's what it is. I think he doesn't even know Barella is there. And so he's motioning as if, like, oh, Ter Stegen can come out and just get this ball. Or, oh, we can just collect this ball, and it'll be fine, and we don't have any threats to worry about. And, and they very much did have a threat to worry about. Then Barella scores. The second goal is uh, is Busquets' turnover in central midfield, which just doesn't happen very often to the point where I'm pretty much willing to excuse Sergio Busquets for almost any turnover he makes. And after that happens... The shift kind of goes, the blame shift very much goes to the defenders that are trying to be on cleanup duty. And Eric Garcia is cleaning up aisle one and just spills even more stuff in aisle one, right? So, I mean, I honestly, I, I don't know what's happening here in Eric Garcia's mind. I think this is just another, like, panic brain blurb kind of moment. So it's Chalanolu who finds Martinez, and Martinez just absolutely toasts Eric Garcia, who sticks out a leg for, for no reason. He has Martinez in a decent spot near the top I'm of the sorry. box. I've, I've got so many thoughts on Eric Garcia. I, I, and yeah, you're summing them yeah, up well, Joe. Uh, like, Graham, I'll flip it to you. The third, goal, the third goal for, for Inter is just Robin Gosens like, streaming into the box. And he just beats Barcelona for speed. But I think he also beats them for timing and awareness and effort in that moment. 
And that just can't happen, right? It's 2-2 at this point in the 89th minute. Barcelona need to stop this attack. It, it's coming down their right, and then they find Gosens coming down the, the left side for Inter, the right side for Barcelona. And, and it's a simple goal, right? It's a really nice hit from Gosens, and that ball doesn't find the back of the net every time. But man, those errors were brutal for Barcelona. As good as Lewandowski was, their defending in those sorts of transition moments and, and other moments in the second half uh, was even worse. Graham, thoughts on Barca's defense? <laughs> Oh, I mean, this isn't the first time that Barcelona's defence has been a mess this season, but it was a, it was a particular mess in, in this match. I won't go on about Marcos Alonso as a left-back again, because I think I've already said my, my piece about this, this, Graham th- loves about him. that this Graham season. Graham loves him a left-back. Um, he, just, him. He, just can't pl- he just can't play in that position. The PK, Joe, the, 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 the worst one is the first goal for me, because I can't understand what PK is doing for that goal. I, I get what you're saying. He doesn't know Barella is there, but... Hit the line that he's holding as a as a full five yards out from the rest of his defense. So even if there's not a player behind him, he should still be holding that that pretty straight line. Um, so I don't really know what's going on in his mind. And then Eric Garcia, I just I just look. I, I know it's rich of me, not a professional soccer player, to sit here and question a professional soccer player, but. I don't really get Eric Garcia. I've watched him for two seasons now, not just for Barcelona as well, but for Spain. And I personally just don't see a player who's good enough for this level. He's poor in the tackle, as demonstrated by him sticking out a, an aimless leg for the second inter goal. He's poor in the air. He's positionally poor. He gets caught out in transition all the time. He's not terrible on the ball, but I wouldn't even say that's a particular quality of his either. He frequently makes mistakes in possession. So I'm not trying to be hot takey or or hyperbolic, but Eric Garcia is just a player who continues to confuse me in the fact that he's had a career where he's come through at Barcelona, gone to Manchester City, then gone back to Barcelona and as a first-team player for Spain. Yeah, I, I just don't really get it. And this was another bad game from him, but he wasn't helped by players around him, I must say. He, uh, the PK and, and Alonso also had pretty terrible games. I will say for the Eric Garcia one uh, that Joe was talking about when that ball comes in in the box, it reminds me of when I was younger and I would watch defenders defend at professional level and they would always do this. They took a weird shape of they would sort of uh, like tr- be, basically they'd be trying to show a player inside, which never made sense to me because they would take a position like 1v1 squared up to force them inside. So I would do that and get schooled constantly. And it took me way too long to realize that that was because they knew the player's dominant foot and were trying to basically be like, all right, you can go onto your your, your non-dominant foot if you want to and shoot, but I know you're not going to shoot well from distance, so I know you're going to cut back right into me. And it seemed like that's what Eric Garcia was trying to do, except in this case, it was in the box and he gave him space and Martinez was just happy to kind of work with that and score the goal. And just moments like that... I think we're so representative of this Barcelona performance, in my mind at least, that when we've come to expect, at least in years past, a Barca team that do the like the Man City thing of like get in down the line and then cut it back and then cut it back again, and now there's just this open tap-in at the back post. Aslani should have done that for Inter, but Usman Dembele has at least two of those, one of which is almost unforgivable that he doesn't play in Ansu Fati. The AR had the flag up, but I think the replay showed that he would have been onside. And that's one where it's just a lack of precision in the attack for Barcelona. It's a lack of precision in the defense that we've already talked about. And so what you end up with, I think, at least in this game, is a collection of individuals who are all very, very good and are all on their day unplayable, but also, I think, don't still really know how to play as a unit to the level that's maybe required at this level. Yeah, and I think the surprising thing about that is 
in the second half of last season for Barcelona, I, I felt Xavi had, had yeah. found a system and there was that structure there. And yes, they, Barcelona weren't quite the sort of tiki-taka team of, of Pep Guardiola, but it felt like they had that control in most games. And actually, if they had a flaw last season in the second half of last season, it was sometimes they failed to create. But those games would be nil-nil draws. You know, it would feel like they would they were a good defensive unit because of the control they had. And that was similar to how Barcelona were with, with Guardiola. This season, and look, obviously the big factor here is they've signed a million players and so Xavi's trying to fit them into a, a team and a system. So that might explain it. But this season, it feels like Barcelona have lost a little bit of that control and it feels like they are a moments team again. Yeah. And and they're they're capable of creating very good moments, you know, as we've seen from Lewandowski and the first goal from Dembele, which was a, I, I really like that goal. I like an angry goal. And it felt like that was an angry goal from Usman Dembele and just Barcelona in general scoring, scoring that goal. But they still create good moments, this Barcelona team. But it, it feels like the... The structure's maybe not there as it was in the second half of last season. I'm going to push back on that point slightly. Graham, it's not that I disagree entirely. I just want to be a bit more specific about (laughs) about how we talk about this Barcelona team. I think it's pretty clear to see that they've made real progress with the ball. Right? I don't I don't think any of us would quibble with that. I think they were controlling games with possession, and even some of their counterpressing moments in this game were really strong, right? Pedri and Gavi are these really aggressive counterpressers after they lose the ball. They're not top-tier straight line classic American American football athletes, but they're doing a lot of really good stuff. The, the, the way Barcelona lost this game wasn't really in Xavi's system or Xavi's game model. It was with individual errors, right? It was one of the most veteran presences on the team making just this pretty obvious defensive mistake. It was your other center back just letting in the second goal in a moment where you should have had control to force them into a low-quality shot at the very least, and that just doesn't happen in that moment. So I don't really think that a lot of the things that happen in this game trace back to Xavi, to be entirely honest with you guys. I think they are individual mistakes that happen in games, right? Even the best systems and the best coaches have those sorts of games where players are just making mistakes just as they have games where their game plan is off and players overcome those mistakes that are made by the coaches. So I just don't think this game, and really maybe much of the season so far, is an indictment of Xavi's ability Mm. to coach. I think he's actually been a really good coach coaching this possession team. If anything, it's an indictment of some of their ability in the transfer market to sign players. I'm willing to go down that road. I just have questions, or at least I'm I'm more skeptical about this discussion about, you know, Xavi's system is sort of deteriorating. I, I don't think that's a fair conclusion from this game. I, th- I think that I think the players in the defense that they're using this season aren't helping. Yeah, the system I think that's true. Structure. I think so that's la- true. So last season, I'm trying to think back to the second half of last season and trying to think who would be in that defense. So at left back, I think for the most part it was Jordi Alba, um, and then you had Ronald Araujo as part of the the, the centre back as well, and then I, and then I guess Sergino Dest as well at, at right back or Dani Alves in some games. And I think all of those players. Um, particularly Araujo and Alba. Alba has his faults and Xavi doesn't seem to be a massive fan of him, but he does have that kind of recovery pace to get back when Busquets turns over the ball or where Barcelona lose the ball in the centre of the pitch. And I look at that back line now for this game of Alonso, Pique, Garcia and Roberto, I don't really see any player in in those four that can provide that safety net that maybe Barcelona did have in, in the second half of last season. So, yes, I take your point on board, Joe. Maybe the system and the structure is the same, but it feels like the players within that system and structure are maybe not as effective of providing those fail-safes. 
Yeah, I think I think to split the difference because I think you're both making very good points. I would just say I think it just looks like a team that isn't as cohesive of a team as we've seen from Barcelona in seasons past, and that's where I see some of those individual mistakes that Joe's talking about. And you're right that that doesn't necessarily mean the manager's getting it wrong or his tactics are completely incorrect, but it just means to me that they don't have that sort of collective spirit of we don't really care who scores because it's going to be pass 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 and we'll get assists and we'll all get goals and we know it's going to work out fine I think Man City kind of play like that where Erling Haaland ends up scoring eventually because he's Erling Haaland but there is more of a I'll be in on goal and I'll lay it off to you and then you'll lay it off to somebody else and then we'll score and what matters is getting that lead and there were just moments in this game where it felt like it was much more hero ball than it was collective team play which I think is very much to their detriment because when they play as a team Somehow that ends up with Robert Lewandowski scoring a bunch of goals. So I, I think anytime you can get him scoring uh, and your defense playing better, I think that probably puts them in a much stronger position. But we should also, before we move on, since we've gone long on this one, uh, just give a little more credit to Inter. Uh, Graham, I, I know mm. you were uh, you were enjoying some of their tactics and especially Andre Onana and his uh, goalkeeping work. Yeah, so this season, it's been a, a difficult one for Inter. The past week has been huge for Simone Inzaghi going into that first Champions League game at home against Barcelona. It really felt like his his job was on the line. Uh, they've now won uh, three games in a row, or sorry, two games and then drew here. This kind of felt a bit like a win for them. And one of the, a big part of the problem has been a lack of identity. And for this match, I thought Inzaghi in the first half went full on Antonio Conte. He went with the, the back three, which was a back five when Barcelona had possession. Um, he pushed the, the midfield three closer to the defence. And essentially what he did was gave Lautaro Martinez, Mkhitaryan and, and Edin Zeko space to work with on the counter. Now we didn't really see much of that in, in the first half. Barcelona did do a good, a good job of keeping Inter pinned back but I still felt like Inter were doing a good job of, of staying disciplined, maybe not allowing that many opportunities for Barcelona. Obviously they scored the opener through Usman Dembele but the fact that that was, as I said, quite an angry goal from Barcelona kind of told you how frustrating they were finding that experience. The second half was a slightly different story. So Lautaro Martinez was brilliant in the second half and that was demonstrated by the goal he scored. He was bursting past Barcelona defenders. He was finding space and obviously it helped that Barcelona were sending so many players forward. But Barcelona couldn't handle him when he was when he got motoring. Barella as well was causing a lot of damage by joining the attacks from midfield. And they were very good in the second half at playing out when they had that ball and making the, the right decisions, which is how they ended up scoring three goals. I would, yeah, you, you mentioned uh, Taylor Onana. I'd like to highlight him. So he started this match as he did in the, the first match against Barcelona. And there was a real clamour for him to start that, that game last week. He's now started three games in a row. And I don't think Handanovic is getting back into this mm. team anytime soon. Um, the way that Onana... He's not the most commanding goalkeeper and he does flap at crosses sometimes. And we saw in the first game at the San Siro that Barcelona almost scored through that. But he gives Inter so much in possession and, and even when he couldn't find a pass out to the defender, he was playing these longer passes into midfield and getting Inter turned, particularly in the, in the second half. So it feels like he could be key to Inter finding an identity this season where they are trying to play out from the back. Handanovic just wasn't able to do that, but Anana is very much able of doing that. So next up for these teams, Inter, uh, home to Salernitana in Serie A. Barcelona have a nice and easy game against Real Madrid. Uh, a yeah. Clasico at the weekend, probably not what they were hoping for, especially an away Clasico. And then uh, the the next big fixtures for both of these teams uh, in the Champions League would be Inter, uh, home to Victoria Pils. And that's the one where if they get, I believe, any results, but definitely a yeah. win, we'll see them through. 
Should note, uh, Simone Inzaghi picks up a red card at the end of this game, so he will be suspended for that one. So they won't have Inzaghi there to make adjustments if they need to. Uh, Barcelona will have to get a result against Bayern Munich to keep any hope alive. So two very interesting games there. I suspect we will end up talking more about Barcelona's game with Bayern Munich, but you never know. For now, what we will do is take a quick break and then come back with much more Champions League chat. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League 1? FX is Welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Welcome back to the Total Soccer Show. We're talking Champions League. Joe Lowry, let's talk about Milan's 2-0 loss uh, to Chelsea. We thought this second game uh, between these two would maybe be a tighter game. It didn't really go that way. I think the Tamori red card had a large part or to play in that one, but I think also just a dominant performance from Chelsea overall. Okay, so let's start with that red card, because I want to get a, a read from you two about whether or not mm-hmm. you thought this was a red card, because I saw Matteo Benetti who does work for CBS on the Serie A side, and I think is a self-professed Serie A fan, and then even Milan fan as well, talking about how this wasn't a red. And then I, I sort of watched this game, and I watched the highlights, and there's not really any discussion in the highlights package, especially about the validity of the red or not. So it's, it is Tamori tugging at Mason Mount's shoulder inside the box multiple times. Mount doesn't go down, though. And so I think that's part of the consternation here. And, and really, when... The whistle is blown, right, when the when the foul is called. Tomori is not really as much engaged in the play and trying to drag Mount down at that point. He's kind of already done it. So there's a lot of factors here. But, but Graham, for you, I, I assume you saw some of this online discord. Is that a discourse? Yep. Is, that a, is that a red or not? Because to me, I, I, I kind of I get it, at least that it's a penalty, right? Yeah, so for me, the, de- the decision is soft. But Dale Johnson of ESPN, and I always go to his Twitter account for clarifications on laws and weird, weird rules in, in soccer... He was he did a good job of of laying this out. So he was basically saying that the double jeopardy thing still applies to pulls on a player while it doesn't apply to tackles because I think that was one of our one of the biggest confusions when I was following this game on Twitter was hold on wasn't the double jeopardy thing removed from the laws of the game, you know, a season or two ago where basically people were complaining that if someone gave away a penalty and then got sent off that was too much punishment and so they changed the law and they did do that for tackles they didn't do it for pulls though so if the referee gives a penalty in that situation Dale's point was he essentially has to send off to Mori so it might be a flaw in the law rather than the referee's decision because for me I could I could buy the argument that it's a penalty but there's there's no way when I'm just looking at what is fair, there's no way for me that that should be a red card. But as Dale points out, it's maybe the, the, the case that the referee didn't actually have much of a decision. If he is applying the letter of the law, that was the correct call. Yeah, I, I think the way I understand it is that if there hasn't been a 
a like good faith effort to play the ball, then it's a red card. So if there's a deliberate handball, if you just shove somebody over, then it's going to be a red card and a penalty because you're not actually trying to make a play. Whereas what they got rid of, I think, was if you go in and foul somebody trying to tackle in the box, sometimes it would be a red card. Even if you were trying to make a play and maybe it was just clumsy, maybe it would be a yellow card elsewhere, but because it's in the box and they're shooting, it's a red. So I think that's where they tried to change that one. But I think you're right, Graham, that it ends up being that sort of technicality of didn't make a play on the ball, was pulling the jersey back. So if you're giving a penalty, then you're also giving that red. I also understand why people like this is one of those where I really do think it depends on your perspective. And it's one that I think very few people are going to change their opinion on. So I understand why people would say shouldn't be a penalty. That's a ridiculous call. For me, I think it's correctly given because there's the the kind of pullback, the contact starts outside of the box. It continues into the box. That's another one they change, that if that con- contact continues into the box, even if it began outside, it's going to be a penalty. But I also think, Joe, you said Mount doesn't go down. And I think you're correct in the sense that he doesn't like clatter over. But when he tries to shoot, Tamori yeah. has pulled him back such that he has disrupted his shooting mechanics. And he ends up doing that sort of falling backwards, gets a toe poke to it. And... From referees I've spoken to about that incident, basically if Mount had been able to get a, like an actual shot off, it's probably not given as a penalty. Because there it's, oh, you played through the contact, you're able to get a shot off, so he, it would have been a foul, but you played through basically advantage given. Because he's not able to get a, a, a full shot off and does end up being disrupted by that contact, I think that's where a foul is given. Because it's in the box, it's a penalty. Because mm. it's in the box and it's not a tackle, it's a red card. So that's where I come down yeah. on it, even if it's soft. I think I think one thing a lot of fans and maybe myself included maybe fail to understand is how difficult it is to write a law of soccer that accounts for basically everything. So you could people you could change this law, right, and be like, well, the pool take take uh, the pool away from the double jeopardy law and include that with tackles. But then what happens if you have like a Chiellini s horse collar inside the box? Like how how do you have the nuance within the law? to account for both of those things. So I think writing laws in soccer is a difficult thing to do. And you, maybe just actually, in general, you can you can remove soccer. Just writing laws in anything is really difficult. <laughs> yeah, true. It, I mean, it's it, it it is ultimately philosophy. I've said this before. I will say it again. That was the most fascinating thing I learned from when my wife was in law school is how much of it is philosophy and theories of law and theories of what constitutes this and what doesn't constitute that. And I think we often have this idea that a law, especially in soccer, is then it's hard and firm, it's this way or it's that way, and that's how it is. That's why we have rules to decide right and wrong. But there's just always going to be a huge amount of gray area. And I think to some extent it's a sort of marketing failure that it needs to be more about the nuances of officiating. I think – like if you watch the Paramount stuff, Jamie Carragher – I like not a shot at him, but he is always very like, why? It shouldn't be this way. It should have been this way. That doesn't make any sense. And I understand that that's kind of the persona you have to have on TV. But I think when you approach it as like, it should be this way and it's not, and that is wrong, misses, I think, kind of that gray area. And Christine Uncle, I think, always tries to explain that. And I think because she's not being as forceful in her delivery, because she's not sort of playing that character, it always seems to me at least like it's not being explained that well or it doesn't quite make sense. And and I think if we, like slowing down and trying to understand what the law says and how it can be interpreted this way or how it can be interpreted that way, it's not going to turn a lot of heads. It's not going to get a lot of headlines or clicks, but I think it's an important part of understanding how the game is played and then having those conversations because ultimately as much fun as watching soccer is and talking about goals, 
there is some fun and like, did you see that? That shouldn't have been a red. Oh, it totally should have been a red. And then having that conversation, ideally in a friendly and calm way. I like that Joe asked this question seven minutes ago, and here we are. Joe, I'll turn it back to you to talk <laughs> about this game. Uh, but thank you for taking us uh, down the red card road. Yeah, I just kind of dropped it and left because I don't really know that I have a lot of concrete thoughts on officiating. I think that is probably, I know, Taylor, you said there's some enjoyment. That's probably my least favorite part of soccer. So yeah. I'm glad you guys did the heavy lifting on that. Chelsea are good, or at least they seem that way right now under Graham Potter. <laughs> I, I don't have much of anything to say about Milan in this game. They get a red no. card early, as we've just talked about, and never threaten Chelsea, basically, in this match. Chelsea... We're playing well right now. Four straight wins uh, for them. They're undefeated under Graham Potter. I believe five games total. The first one was a draw. They've won the four since then, and they look good, right? Tifo had a really good video. If you don't watch Tifo videos on YouTube and you like soccer, I think you're missing out a little bit. Tifo had a really good video with John McKenzie sort of breaking down, you know, is this Graham Potter Chelsea team better than Thomas Tuchel? Because you watch them, and at least at a sort of a bird's eye view level, they play like exactly the same soccer, right? They play this possession-oriented game. Usually it's a back three. It's a lot of the same rotation. I mean, the, the shape in this game even for, for Chelsea was a 3-4-3, right? That's what Tuchel used all the time. Potter is willing to do a lot of what Tuchel did. But one thing that, that John pointed out in that video was that they're actually not attacking any faster, Chelsea, to get to goal, right? Their, their direct speed towards goal is slower under Potter than it was under Tuchel, which is puzzling because a lot of the, the criticism of Thomas Tuchel's last bit in charge was that they were too ponderous in the final third. But maybe even though Chelsea aren't getting into the final third and getting towards goal faster in terms of literal seconds, when they do get into the final third, the rotations and the quick passing combinations are sharper. And man, we see that on the second goal in this game, right, from Chelsea. Maybe this is just anecdotal evidence, but it really does seem to fit that idea. It's Kovacic who finds Mount. Mount uh, then then one touches it into the box, and it could have found either Sterling or Aubameyang. Aubameyang kind of takes it off of Sterling, or at least gets the ball quicker. And he gets on the end of Mount's touch in the box and scores to make it 2-0. And it's just a pass, 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 pass kind of sequence. It's so satisfying to watch. And it's a great goal from Chelsea that does illustrate that maybe they're a little bit more cohesive and purposeful in the final third, even if they're not necessarily playing faster all the time, maybe under Potter. And it, it is a small sample size, so we should put a pin in this and, and come back to it later, at least in this tactical regard. Man, Chelsea are, are finding more of those moments to just be ruthless in the attack. Graham, so Joe, impressed by Chelsea, would you like to talk about how impressed you were by Chelsea or how not impressed you were by AC Milan? I think I'd like to highlight Chelsea. Right. I'm I'm surprised at how, maybe not surprised because obviously he's a good manager, but I think Potter deserves credit for the way that he has turned Chelsea around by doing absolutely nothing different, which Joe uh, highlighted pretty well. I think one of the most interesting parts about Chelsea under Potter has been their midfield. Um, so in that first game at Stamford Bridge, he played Loftus-Cheek and Kovacic together, and it reminded me of the, the Japanese game plan against the US men's national team a few weeks ago, where Chelsea allowed the Milan centre-backs to have the ball, but as soon as it was played into the centre midfield, they were able to close them down. And Chelsea played Jorginho in this game, but there was still an element of that. And Benacer and Tonali, they struggled with this. And Pioli tried to counter this by pushing Teo Hernandez into the centre midfield. And we spoke about this, I think, on the weekend review about maybe Teo Hernandez giving AC Milan something different. I thought he had, not necessarily because of his own individual performance, but I don't think he had much of an impact in this game. Pioli wanted him to push through the centre of the midfield. But what Potter did and what Chelsea did was they just um, allowed Mount to follow him into the centre of the midfield and it didn't really help Milan progress the ball. The one time they did 
play out from the back. They got the midfield turned. They got Teo Hernandez driving through the centre of the pitch, which is actually the the one time that they created a goal-scoring opportunity through Olivier Giroud. That was the only time we kind of saw Milan's game plan work. And then, of course, once they, they get the red card. Actually, I think that came after the red card. But nonetheless, in terms of the, the balance of the game after the red card, it just allowed Chelsea to get on the ball a lot more comfortably. And, and they basically just kind of saw out this game and controlled it. So maybe Pioli can justify this one because of the red card, because it's Chelsea. Joe, I'm going to assume Allegri will have a harder time justifying Juve's loss yeah. to Maccabi Haifa. Uh, taking nothing away from them, because Josh Cohen uh, coming up big in this one. But I feel like every time I think Juve have sort of hit the bottom and now they have to bounce back, they find a way to be even less inspiring. Yeah, and so Taylor, you asked in the doc that we share to sort of get us start, get ourselves ready for this show, the opening line underneath this game for you, I think you put this in, is is this the most yep. surprising result of the second Allegri era? And and I answered somehow both yes and no at the exact same yep. time. And I, I, that is how I feel about this game, right? In some ways, it will always be surprising to see a zero next to Juventus and a two next to a team like Maccabi Haifa. No, no shots intended there at Maccabi Haifa and Josh Cohen, which is a great story, right? Them getting this result. I mean, it's, it's no shots. It's just a statement of fact. It's the like, reality. It, 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 it is 100% is. the reality. Yeah. Absolutely. So it is surprising in that way, but absolutely not surprising when you've watched this Juventus team this year, when we've talked about them in the way that we have and in the depth that we have on the big thing, which we did a few weeks ago. This is not surprising. This team is just not very good right now, right? I, I'm not trying to be like hot takey. Juve are just bad right now. That's, I think that's pretty much the takeaway that we have from their season. Allegri seems like he's not getting anything more than the sum of the parts out of this team and, and maybe even less than the sum of their parts. I don't think the tactical approach is, or, or at the very least, the execution is up to par. Juventus are, are oftentimes playing this 4 4 2 which is fine. It's a little bit of a retro a retro look, but there's not really an issue in my mind with doing something different than a lot of the other big teams in the world, than uh, Manchester City and Liverpool and Barcelona and even Real Madrid and even Napoli, right? They're playing differently than all of those teams, both you know financial rivals and country rivals, but they're not playing their way well, right? They're in this 4-4-2. They're willing to cede possession at times, and they're still going to control stretches in games like this. They're ceding possession at times, which is fine if you absorb pressure well and attack on the break. Well, Juve are not really absorbing pressure all that well. They lose 2-0 in this game to a team that has you know, not, a, not really a speck of the talent that they do, and they're not dangerous on the break, right? They have a few chances. They have 10 shots in this game, but they're mostly low-quality chances, and it's the fewest shots taken against Maccabi Haifa in the Champions League group stage this year. They're not, they're not really dangerous in the attack, and they're, they're vulnerable in the defense. This Juve team is, is bad, and I honestly don't see them turning things around outside yeah. of like an inspired January transfer window. But, I mean, their financial troubles are why Allegri's still here, or at least that's my understanding. So, yeah, I, I'm kind of out of things to say about Juventus at this point other than just yikes. Yeah, I, I feel the same, Joe. It's just not going to turn around for Juve. They're going to have to sack Allegri at some point because it's just all the same things, all the things you listed off there. No identity, no intensity, no clear idea of how this team should be playing. And then perpetual denial from Allegri, who continues to put the failings down to things like a lack of effort rather than anything else. And there's there's not really much self-reflection there from him. And I struggle to come up with one thing that this Juventus team is doing well at the moment. There's no service to their attackers. 
other than maybe when Angel Di Maria plays and he comes off injured in this game and I think he's going to be missing for three weeks. So that is not good news for Juventus. So there's no service to the attackers. There's no control. They don't create chances. They look shaky at defending in transition and they don't defend crosses into the box well. And Maccabi Haifa in this game looked like they were going to score with every cross that they made in the first half. That's how they scored the opener. And you would look through that Juventus defence and there should be some good experience in that team, but they just look so naive. The defending for the second goal, Taylor, I dropped this into our Slack chat. Um, It might even be worse than the defending for the first goal. (laughs) Alexandro thinks that he's standing up his man who's going to take a shot, but his body shape is all wrong and he's left an entire side of the goal open and guess what happens? The ball goes in that side of the goal. So it feels even like the players that Juventus have, the experienced heads, the players who have achieved some success, success, um, they're just not performing well either. Uh, Graham, breaking news. Uh, Barcelona are going to activate their 17th lever of the season to sign Alexandro for 40 million euros after your uh, appraisal of him in this one. It, it is really confusing because on the one hand, it does seem like this is a Juve team that is in flux. They've got new players coming in. They're, I think, trying to change the squad a little bit, at least. That's been the messaging from the the front office. At the same time, I think Allegri, with the contract he has, the money put into it, Joe, I think you're right. He's he's not getting sacked because of financial reasons. Uh, but I think also it's another one of those, they've now sacked a couple managers. If they get rid of him, it starts to look like the board doesn't know what it's doing. And so I think they're hoping that this gets turned around and he figures it out. They're trying to give him, I think, more leeway. There was the banner outside the stadium that was making the rounds uh, that was written out that said, Mr. Allegri, do not resign. Those who fight against you are not worthy of this shirt. I really enjoyed all the comments uh, speculating on how Allegri had been able to get out there in the middle of the night to put that up without anyone seeing him. <laughs> People calling for handwriting analysis to see if he wrote that himself or if one of the board members did. It's it's a strange situation for Juve. Uh, I hope Weston McKinney is safe. That, that's all I'm worried about right now. Joe, should he be in bubble wrap? Should we just remove him from this situation entirely? I th- I think so, Taylor. You know okay. I stand. You know where I stand on this stuff. Okay. All right. I I, I do. I do. Uh, let's talk about one more game, then we'll get another break in. Let's talk Rangers Liverpool. Graham, this game a definitive "Don't poke the bear" sort of performance from Rangers. <laughs> I did really love. They get the go ahead goal. Uh, and when they tried to zoom in on the players celebrating, they absolutely could not because the stadium was bouncing so much that the camera yeah. couldn't stay stationary, which was an amazing moment. This felt like for a moment, Rangers were going to have this incredible victory. It was going to be even worse uh, situation for Liverpool. And then Liverpool remembered who they were and won this one 7-1. to one. Yeah, such a strange game yeah. because for much of the first half, it really did feel like Rangers were in this match. Um, even at 1-1, it felt like they were still creating chances. Liverpool re- weren't really doing all that much. And then, as you mentioned, the home atmosphere was probably the best Rangers have had in the Champions League so far this season. And then the second half was kind of like, oh no, oh no, this is horrendous. <laughs> um, and yeah, in the second half, Liverpool looked like Liverpool again. Klopp set them up in a in a four four two for the first half at least. And and Roberto Firmino he changed the game, although some atrocious defending from Rangers helped in that regard. And then by the time Salah came off the bench to score a six minute hat trick, the quickest hat trick in Champions League history, it was it was all over. 
um, by then. And I'm, I'm not sure how much to read into this result from Liverpool's point of view because Rangers have been very poor in the Champions League this season. The, the team that made the Europa League final last season just hasn't turned up in the Champions League this season. And I know I know um, of some Rangers fans, some friends, who have already turned against Giovanni Van Bronckhorst. Yeah. And, I, and I can understand why. The fundamentals that were left in place by Steven Gerrard, things like defensive solidity have been completely eroded this season and it's just been brutally exposed exposed in the Champions League. But nonetheless, for Liverpool, this is a confidence boost for them ahead of Sunday's match against Man City in the Premier League. Um, I don't think Liverpool can sit up in this way against City. I don't think they can play in a 4-4-2. I think they'll get overwhelmed in the centre of the pitch. But if Salah and Firmino and Nunes feel sharper after this game, then that is a good thing for them. The other good thing from this game, no Americans involved. I expected to see James Sands have a very poor match rating. Uh, he was not involved, nor was Malik Tillman, though that also is maybe not that comforting that they weren't involved in this one. But I guess it's a, it's a mixed bag for them. A negative bag for Rangers and a more positive one for Liverpool. Certainly, uh, it's been pointed out elsewhere, including on Football Weekly, but uh, it took Mohamed Salah... Like, I think a few amount, a smaller amount of time to score that hat trick than it takes for the entirety of Tiny Dancer by Elton John. Uh, so you could have listened <laughs> to that song and seen three goals and still had some song left to listen to. On that note, we're going to take one more break. We'll be back to round out this week's Champions League games. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Welcome back. We've got lots of Champions League still to be discussed. Joe, let's talk about Dortmund. Sevilla, a draw for Sevilla, much better for them uh, this time than the last time they played. Uh, we, we have uh, Sampali on the sideline instead of Lopetegui. We also have Gio Reyna back. Was your heart filled with happiness, Joe? Happiness and immediate concern at the same time. Yep. Uh, real of concern. <laughs> we uh, just, just to plug a little bit briefly, we had a really good piece, I think, go up on Backfield recently. We had uh, conversation between Gio Reyna and Joe Scally, and there's just so much banter in it, so many barbs about uh, Joe Scally's German and about Gio Reyna's like personality and the difference between him on the field and off the field, and about the food that they. I mean, all just a whole bunch of good stuff about like NYCFC's academy being better than FC Dallas and the LA Galaxy, and you can still tell. Like even the players back in NYCFC's academy were feeling the the lack of attention on them relative to how much we talk about FC Dallas. It's a really good piece, and so the timing of that mixed with Gio Reyna's comeback this week made it uh, just a really good Gio Reyna week. I really enjoyed it. At the same time, crossing all of my fingers and toes. Don't ask me how I do it. It's very difficult, but I can. Not really. I can't do that. But watching Gio Reyna come back and, and not get injured was a delight because he he looked pretty good on the field for Dortmund in this game. I thought he had a nice bit of skill coming off the bench with about 20 minutes left to play. 
And most importantly, he didn't get hurt. So that is a good thing. This isn't like a mind-blowing result for Dortmund, but on the whole, they're doing fine, right? They're going to get out of this group. Man City's on 10 points, Dortmund's on 7, Sevilla and, and Copenhagen are both on 2. So they got the job done in this game, Taylor. Joe, how is this the first time you've mentioned that you all have this article up? Because Giorgio and Joe Scali having a back and forth. I now wonder, were you involved? Are you guys best friends? Did you get to hang no, out? Are you guys no, no. So I was, I was editing. We had Sanjay go over to Germany to do a lot of the coverage of the U.S. men's national team. And he's over there right now covering the women's national team as well. And it's a really good piece. I think Sanjay did a phenomenal job with it. And just the the banter, like Joe Scali and Gio Reyna, I think have known each other since they were eight or nine. That's kind of the opening of the piece. They've known each other for a long yeah. time. Gio Reyna still remembers or claims to remember the first time they played. And of course, he remembers that his team beat Joe Scali's team three to one. So it, it is, it's a really good piece that gives you some insight into Gio Reyna. But I didn't bring it up because we weren't really talking about Gio Reyna until right now. And I yeah. felt like it would have been a little awkward to shoehorn in the midst of a Juve discussion. Either way, go go check out the piece. I tweeted about it a bunch. Go to my Twitter. Go to Sanjay's Twitter or Bakio's Twitter or whatever. Go to the website. You'll read I, it. Joe, it's great. Joe, Joe has lent Gio Reyna so many body parts yeah. over the last 12 months that Gio he owes felt me this. he owed Bakio's <laughs> an interview. Yeah, exactly. Joe, exactly. I, I would have found where, like uh, when the Allegri banner went up, I would have been like, speaking of uh, like fans liking Allegri, I've got a story about friends. Like <laughs> I, You could have cr- crowbarred that one in wherever you you're needed right. to. You're right. Uh, but I, I appreciate that you did not because you're a, a consummate professional. So too is Tangi Nianzu, who got his, his first yeah. goal for Sevilla, a great header. He also had a great defensive play when Dortmund had like a three 3v2, he gets back and has just a little poke tackle, really well-timed, could have been a penalty or a red card potentially, uh, but it was not. So credit to him, maybe less credit to uh, Terzic, Graham, for putting back in Modeste. I know that's not your favorite thing. I think I understand why they keep going with him, but I would love to hear your thoughts on why maybe they shouldn't. It's just he is not uh, the right frontman for this Dortmund team, and there's so much evidence at this point. So after the the classicer at the weekend, where he brings on Modest, I'm not saying Modest is a useless player. He has his uses, but he brings on Modest <laughs> as uh, as part of a front two against Bayern Munich. He gets the equalizer because Makuku and Anna Yemi can do the running off him, and he's basically in the box there to finish chances. When he is used as the frontman, frontman, there's just not that fluidity. And so I was very surprised to see him back in that in that position. And all of a sudden, um, or no coincidence, I should say, when Makuku comes off the bench, then all of a sudden Dortmund kind of have that fluidity again. And I understand he's just 17 years old, but Terzic really needs to stop using Modest as a number nine on his, on his own. It just does not work in this team. But I'm interested to hear your thoughts, Taylor, on why he keeps doing this. I mean, first of all, I think the, uh, the equalizer against uh, Bayern, that was Modest, right? It was, but that yeah. comes when he has playing in the front too. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean I th- I think there there's that little bit, but I think a, a larger one would be just that I think he is meant to be the target in the box. It's meant to be attacked on the channels, have the overlaps, have put the ball in quickly, try to catch the defense out, especially a Sevilla defense that hasn't looked as strong this season. I think theoretically that's what they're going for, but I think Dortmund didn't really do a ton of the, the crossing into the box, didn't really do a ton of that sort of bombing down the wings. I think oftentimes did attack if they started wide, they would immediately go central. That's how uh, Nianzu was able to make that defensive play because Dortmund ended up crowding in the middle. Mm. And so I think you can under I can understand what the game plan roughly was, but I agree with you overall. I don't think that's what they did, so I don't think do, it worked that well. Do you know how many touches of the ball Modest had in the first half? 108. <laughs> no, <laughs> like four? slightly less than that. Four, yes, four. Wait, really? Making 
Yeah, four oh. touches of the ball in wow. 45 minutes. He's right. making Erling Haaland look like peak Javi Hernandez. <laughs> Yo, I don't know who. I don't know who is. That's amazing. That I don't know good. who is editing this episode. But uh, for a title, I'm going to need it to be Why Graham Ruffin Loves Marcus Alonso, Eric Garcia, and Anthony Modest. Yeah. Uh, let's, w- let's make that happen. I was just thinking about how Graham doesn't. Graham, one thing I appreciate about you, I feel like you have the, the, the accent and at times the passion to toss out phrases like useless more often referring to yeah. teams and players. You don't, right? <laughs> yeah. You're very selective in when you do it to the point where I really feel like it's meaningful. So you play that that you play your cards very well. We've learned today that Eric Garcia in Graham's book, useless. Anthony Modest, not quite useless. Modest, not I mean, you are right, useless. You are right on the edge. So, like, you got to watch it, or you and Eric are going to be like cast off onto Graham's uh, island that he just sends people to that are useless. So, just just watch it, Modest. That's yeah. all I'm saying. It's one of the things Scottish people have is that insults, I think, do sound uh, quite good coming yeah. out of uh, coming out of our mouth in a Scottish dialect. So, yeah, watch out, Anthony Modest and Eric Garcia. Maybe I've just not had enough sleep today. But the way you you paused, Graham, on that one, like, well, he's not completely useless, just made me think like he'd cooked you a fried egg once. That was pretty good. I mean, he did make that egg. That was pretty good. I mean, soccer-wise, he's not doing much. But uh, that egg was solid. He's not completely useless. Uh, He makes makes a passable omelet. Bit rubbery, but, you know, edible. (laughs) Yeah. Rubbery omelet. Get out of here. That is the worst thing. That's worse than only four touches and a half. Uh, I feel like Graham saying someone isn't completely useless is the equivalent of my wife saying something is interesting. It's a burn of epic proportions that you don't know is quite a burn. Uh, so I'm learning new things. Let's see if we learn new things uh, for, about Copenhagen Man City. Joe, no Holland, no party. Are you okay with no Holland uh, in this one? Yeah, I mean, City have done fine this year. They didn't need this game. It's, it's a good opportunity from Pep to rest Holland a little bit. I think Pep in general has done a really good job of managing Holland's minutes this year, and it seems like that's going okay. Holland doesn't play full 90s every weekend. I think that's really good for him because let's not forget, at Dortmund, he was injured a lot, right? Dortmund would have been a lot better last year if Holland was on the field more. And so, so far for City, he's been on the field in big moments for them. This game didn't really matter. It made it a bit of a snooze fest for those of us that, that like to watch incredible people play soccer. And Erling Holland is just ridiculous right now. But yeah, I, I think it's a smart decision from Pep. And I, I do think City could have gotten something out of this game. They have an early goal that, that's disallowed. But still, they're they're fine. They're on 10 points in their group. They are going into the round of 16. Or, sorry, the, yeah, is that the next round? That is, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. Uh, Graham, uh, Jack Grealish, Riyad Mahrez, were they completely useless? Not completely useless? <laughs> Where are they on your scale? Do you know the funny thing is, my, this, my notes start yeah. with no Haaland, no party, City are useless. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. I don't know why this has become my word of the day. Um, but yeah, obviously I, I am kidding slightly, Joe outlines rather well there that yeah. this result is not a disaster for Manchester City. I didn't enjoy Grealish and, and Mares playing as the wingers. I think with Haaland not there as well, they just don't have anyone to run in behind because Foden and Bernardo Silva are also missing from the City team. So I think Pep has maybe found out something there that having those two, obviously Grealish and Mares like to cut inside and it just makes everything a little bit congested when you don't have that out ball to Haaland. It was Julian Alvarez who starts up front for Man City, who I actually do like. I just think maybe playing him alongside a Haaland is his best position and actually using him as the number nine is perhaps not. I know that's where he played in Argentina, but as I have seen of him for City this season, that is not his purpose for this team. 
to bring some order to this show, uh, that was Group G. We've got Man City on 10 points, Dortmund on 7, Sevilla on 2, Copenhagen on 2. So congrats to Man City and Dortmund. We would assume they will both go through. We will assume Dortmund will. Man City definitely will. Uh, in Group H, we talked about Juve, Maccabi Haifa. Uh, that has both of them joint bottom uh, in third and fourth, respectively. Uh, which leaves uh, PSG top alongside Benfica, uh, both on eight points, both with a goal difference of plus three. Uh, and Graham, not much changed after these two met uh, this week. Yeah, so the big storyline before this match was the news about Kylian Mbappe and his reported desire to leave PSG due to broken promises. Apparently, <laughs> if only he'd had the chance to walk away from PSG just a few months ago, say at the end of a, a contract. But yeah, that's uh, that's your problem, Killian. PSG they were on they were on top in the early stages of this match and in the first half in general. They had some decent chances. They scored the first goal through Mbappe, who was was very good. He was all over the place in a, in a good way for long periods of this match, and um, that was pretty notable after the weekend where he made public comments about wanting to play in a two. It seems like he wants PSG to sign a striker, and seeing as now he is contracted as their de facto sporting director. Maybe he will get that wish in the in the January transfer window. But in the second half, Benfica, they lifted their energy and their pace of the play. They did a, a better job of building attacks through their midfield. And towards the end, it kind of felt like both teams had more to lose than gain by going for the win, win which maybe says something about how out of the picture Juventus are in this group that both of these teams are pretty comfortable and just kind of holding the top two positions between them. Messi not being available was a factor in PSG, not having their usual creativity. And I thought Benfica did a good job of preventing Neymar from getting on the ball. He was he was dropping very deep to get, get involved and that was kind of congesting PSG's midfield play. But Benfica, they're, they're a really good team under Roger Schmidt at the moment. They've, they've yet to lose a, a match this season in both domestic league form and also in the Champions League. And obviously now they've played two games home and away against PSG. So um, yeah, it looks like they're a good bet to make it into the, into the last 16. In fact, is that official yet? I think maybe they need a point or two. Yeah. But it's pretty much confirmed at this point. Yeah, basically, Benfica, I think their next game is home to Juve. Juve will obviously need to get a win there to keep their hopes alive and then hope Benfica drop points in their final day. That seems unlikely. Stranger things have happened. But right now, yeah, I'd, I'd say my money would be on PSG and Benfica to go to the next round. Uh, Real Madrid have already booked their place in the next round in Group F. They're on 10 points top of that group. Leipzig get a win over Celtic to take over second place. Shakhtar had uh, previously drawn with Real Madrid in their game, 1-1, to so they're on five points. Celtic, bottom on one. At least they got a point, mm. Graham. They're, they're doing better than yeah. Rangers in that way. Yeah, it's a low bar this season. It's, <laughs> it's, I feel a bit sorry for Celtic, because their story is very different to Rangers. Rangers have been absolutely pitiful in the Champions League. But for Celtic, it's basically been the same lesson over and over again in all four Champions League games that they have played. Their finishing just hasn't been good enough. And uh, just like the other three games they've played, they were wasteful against Leipzig in this home game. There was a particular moment in the first half where Celtic were well on top for a period. They had possession, they were creating chances. And then there's an opportunity where Kyogo hits the post with a header and then Greg Taylor immediately hits the bar with the rebound from that header. Yep. And at that point, you just got the sense it's, it wasn't happening <laughs> for them. Postacoglu has got his, his head in his hand and you can just tell this ball is not going in the back of the net for us. And it's kind of been that sense in all four games that they have played. And the other problem for Celtic is they do drop off after the hour mark and that happened 
again and Leipzig took advantage as they did in the first half uh, sorry in the first match last week and when Timo Werner is making you look wasteful as a team that's when you know that you have missed too many chances and that's what Celtic did in this game they're now officially out of the Champions League Celtic and that is a big disappointment two games from the end of the group stage but as I said in our preview of the Champions League this season this is a young team who lack Champions League experience and I think that has showed in every match that they've played so far so the the task for them is to come back next season and improve on that and be a little bit wiser and a little bit more experienced and certainly more clinical in front of goal. So the the dream dead for now for Celtic, uh, still alive for Shakhtar and Leipzig. Shakhtar in the one the one draw with Madrid. Graham, here is my summary of that game. Okay. Meh. That's what I got for you. Your thoughts on, on Madrid one, uh, Donetsk one, Shakhtar one. So I found this I found this match really interesting. It was right. on course to be a brilliant story until Antonio Rudiger ruined everything, including his own face, in the fifth minute of uh, of stoppage time when he gets a, a very late equaliser for Real Madrid. But um, Shakhtar Donetsk have been very competitive in the Champions League this season, considering everything that they are dealing with, which is, is is remarkable. This is a team that lost the majority of their foreign players due to UEFA deciding they could walk away from their contracts, a team that is playing its home games in Poland because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and yet they have five points from four games, um, having played two of them against Real Madrid, and it was seconds away from being seven points. And had Shakhtar won this... Real Madrid couldn't have had any any complaints. They were uninspired for large parts of this match. Nothing was happening for them, as demonstrated by the fact that they used Rudiger as emergency centre-forward for a good 10 minutes at the end, and obviously that worked with the equaliser. But I, th- I think Real Madrid get a little bit lucky there. And, and Shakhtar, they just looked so much more dangerous in quick transition through Mudrich, who, who looks like a fantastic player, and Lasana Traore. So you could argue that Shakhtar deserved to win this game, but they are still very much in contention for a place in the last 16, which would be incredible if they pulled that off. Uh, It would indeed. Let's talk Group E briefly. We've already talked Chelsea-Milan. Chelsea on top there. Salzburg in second on six points. Milan third on four. Dinamo Zagreb on four as well. So somewhat open, but Chelsea, I think, have to be feeling pretty confident. Group D, we haven't spoken about at all. Uh, Tottenham top, Marseille behind them, then Sporting, then Eintracht Frankfurt. Anybody want to talk about any of these games? So a much-needed win for Spurs, given their recent form. Tottenham were very good in the the first half, despite falling behind early on but they were pretty sloppy in the second half it was a weird game so they started off poorly then were good then were bad and then were good again Kane missed a a penalty and Frankfurt came back into the match nonetheless it was a a 3-2 win for Spurs two goals from Son means that he's now scored five in his last five games so he's rounding into form so that's good news for for Tottenham and they're they're now top of group D but they're only one point ahead of Marseille and Sporting, who they face in the final two matches. So this this group is far from over. And actually, while I understand this group maybe doesn't have any superpowers or any big hitters in it, it has kind of emerged as one of the more interesting group in, a, in, a, in an MLS sort of parity way, where there's not much between all four teams. Uh, I will say Marseille's form in the Champions League was loss-loss-win-win. Sporting's form was uh, win-win-loss-loss. So I feel like Marseille probably uh, feeling more confident of the two. Uh, Graham, one more question from this one. Uh, You mentioned Dembele's goal earlier as being a very angry goal. Was Dembele's strike the most angry or was Son Heung-min's strike the most angry of the Champions League match day? 
I feel like in the action itself, Sons was the angriest, mm. but as a as a, a full and as the entirety, including the celebration and everything, Dembele's was the angriest. Uh, but because I feel like maybe Son Hyung Min is not capable of being angry without, <laughs> uh, you know, without if we're looking beyond his play, uh, you know, he's that maybe not his character. I mean, I feel like he's got a red card or two before. He's got some anger. He in has. There. He has actually. I might have to revise that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I see. I he feel- plays innocent, but maybe not that in- innocent. You're right. He has had a few red cards. He has. He has the the red mist moments. I think where it's just like, uh oh, that's not good. He's done something there. Every now and then they pop up, and maybe he channeled the red mist into this strike. Uh, either way, I think you're absolutely right, Graham. That that uh, group wide open. But uh, we mentioned Madrid uh, conceding goals, uh, having that draw. Joe, do you know what that means? with Madrid conceding goals? That they're... uh, No. Tell me. Tell me what it means. It means that the team that we all knew would go the furthest in this competition without conceding a goal has now Ah. set that record. It's Club Brugge, I I, I have learned uh, in the course of the week. Club Brugge, top of their group of Group B. uh, Three wins, one draw. Have not yet conceded. Have scored seven goals. They will be in the next round. Yeah. I did not see this coming, yeah. even in this group with Porto, Madrid, uh, Atletico, and Bayer Leverkusen. A, a shocker that Brugge have done what they've done. Yeah, and and Simon Minule has been in many ways like the guy for them, right? Which feels wrong, sort of. Thirty four. I mean, we we know Minule very well, right? Spent a lot lot of time at Liverpool, Sunderland before that. He's been just lights out for them in pretty much every group stage game they've played. He was, again, lights out for them in this game against Atletico Madrid. Atletico Madrid take 21 shots in this match. Nine of them are on target, and four of those are blocked, by the way. So the the defending doing some some good things there. But nine of them are on target. They racked up 2.45 expected goals on target, which is this this idea of post-shot expected goals. It's where the ball is going to go on the goal mouth. It's a rough representation of how hard shots are to save. And Minulay saved all of that, right? They, they didn't hit the ball into the back of the net, Atletico Madrid, in 90-plus minutes. Minulay deserves a ton of credit for that. And you can see how much this means to him after the final whistle when Brugge uh, clinched. That's going to take me a long time to get used to. Brugge, do it. Uh, yikes. Okay, I'm going to get so there. It's, okay, you can go with either one because I think, from what I understand, Brugge is the Flemish and then Bruges is the French, and since they're kind of, you could go with either one. You could say Bruges if you want, or Brugge, or Bruja. If I the other, I think that's the di- local dialect. If, if I show up at company. the club, Taylor, and I say Bruges, am I going to get yelled at? That's that's what's going to decide what I say here. I think the best way, just be like uh, Club Brugge and see what they do with that. One. Okay, just go go the other way and completely mispronounce it. Club Brugge. Um, you can see how much Brugge. it meant to Brugge in this game. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure people are gonna love this. You can see how much it meant to that Minulay was celebrating. I mean, this is a great moment for yeah. this club. I, I really don't know how long this run is sustainable, but I mean, making it into the knockout rounds. Anything can happen in that stage. So congratulations to Brugge yeah. for all the work they've done, and, and for Minulay especially because I think he has been the X factor here. Colin Farrell must be furious. <laughs> I love that movie so much. <laughs> with it, with uh, Brugie with their alcoves, Graham. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think they're, they're doing just fine. Uh, yeah. We should also maybe briefly talk about Atleti, who uh, really not having the campaign, I thought. Or maybe, I guess, if you're an Atleti fan, you saw this coming. But it has been... 
a dismal campaign uh, in the Champions League. They're now third. They're still very much capable of making it to the next round. But I watched Porto uh, sort of manhandle Bayer Leverkusen, and Porto seemed like they're going to be a pretty tough cookie to get past, mm. uh, to mix my metaphors. So, Graham, are we feeling like maybe Atleti are another big club headed for the Europa League? Yeah, potentially. This this result and their performances in the Champions League this season doesn't they haven't said a lot for Atletico Madrid who are really struggling at the moment and nothing is working them for working for them in in the attack. And if you look at the attackers that they have, and this isn't the first time I've spoken about this this season, so I'm gonna keep this short, but they've got Antoine Griezmann, Yao Felix, Alvaro Morata, Matas Cunha, and Angel Correa, which I would say is a collection of of pretty talented forwards. And they've scored just two goals in four Champions League games this season. And it used to be the case, to turn this discussion on to Simeone, it used to be the case when Atleti were at their best under him that he would get more out of the players. They were, Atletico Madrid under Simeone were more than some of their parts. I am not totally convinced you can say that about Atletico Madrid this season. And I do wonder if this continues, keeping in mind that last season wasn't a good season for Atletico Madrid, I, I am now asking the question, what is it going to take for the focus to, to be turned on uh, on Simeone? Because I know he has moulded that club. Everything is about him at Atletico Madrid. He's the highest paid manager in European football. But there comes a point, like we saw with Arsene Wenger at Arsenal, where you feel like maybe someone else would do a better job. I'm not saying we're at that point yet, but we're getting there. It's starting to enter my mind and performances like this just don't help. Agreed. And and I think you can see in, say, Bayer Leverkusen, what can happen when you make that change. Yes, they lose pretty pretty resoundingly to FC Porto, but Xavi Alonso does seem to be a breath of fresh air watching the first half of this one. At that at the end of that one, it felt like, okay, I, I've seen enough. I'm going to switch over to Barca Inter, and I did not regret that choice. But Leverkusen had their chances. They have a penalty that is saved. They have a few different chances in the first half that, uh, like, Bakker especially has one where he's played in, shoots it wide when he could have, at the very least, put it on frame or squared it to a teammate who was wide open at the back post. But this could have gone a different way. I think this was a game where Leverkusen failed to execute on the individual level. But the tactics were there. The energy was much higher. It was just a better performance, even in the loss. And so you can shake things up. But you can also still have losses when you change the manager. So I don't uh, envy the decision makers at Atleti who have a big task ahead of them, potentially, if they do decide that they need to change things up. But they've got the, the two games remaining. Maybe Atleti win both, and we feel foolish for even entertained of the possibility. One other thing I wanted to note from this group, uh, if people haven't seen it, the first goal for Porto is really worth your time. I, I think uh, Big Sam, Tony Pulis, Alan Kerbishley, and many other Route 1 managers all nodding <laughs> approvingly because this is goalkeeper, 70 yards over the top uh, to the striker who then carries it forward and score, scores. It's a great ball from uh, Diogo Costa, the goalkeeper for Porto. The first touch from uh, Galeno, who brings it down, is unreal. It's one of those, it really is a 70-yard ball over the top that he kills dead with one touch and then is able to dribble forward from there. Just a really pretty goal, even in just being the most simplistic goal you can probably get. Really lovely from Porto and a really good game from Diogo Costa, a player that I didn't really have on my radar at all, but he has an assist in this game. He saves a penalty. He saved a penalty in the previous game against Leverkusen. He has a great reaction save on Bakker. Uh, I mentioned that one earlier. So I think... Uh, overall, a great game from him and a strong performance from Porto, uh, who will then 
need to get a point or two against Atleti to uh, to make it to the next round of the competition. I promise I said Atleti if it didn't sound like it. Every time I, it's it's marginal, I get I get tweets from people saying it's not Atleti. I'm aware. I'm aware. <laughs> but it is Brugge, to be clear. It is but Brugge. it is Brugge. Yep. Uh, and then final group, Group A, we talked about Liverpool smashing Rangers. Joe, uh, we, we need to take a moment for you to continue to turn the knife into Ajax because I'm assuming your love for Napoli only grows uh, day by day. Yeah, I don't even know who Ajax is at this point. I don't remember ever liking them or having any sort of you know friendship with Ajax. No, I, Napoli have been from there from day one for me. Ajax giving up ten goals. <laughs> I'm just Joe. I'm sorry. I'm just picturing Ajax texting you and you fully just responding. New phone. Who did? Yeah, like I don't Ajax. even know. So who you're, you are. you're over there. I really don't know who. You, I don't even recognize you. So I don't. Whatever. <laughs> we can set you aside. Ajax giving up ten goals in their two games against Napoli tells us a couple of things. So they they, they gave up four in this. Go- <laughs> they gave up four in this game. It tells us ten things. It tells yeah. us yeah. It tells us ten things. I'm gonna focus <laughs> it down to two though. Um, one is that Napoli are very very good and very very yeah. fun. So credit to Napoli. Osimhen is back in this game. They're, they're excellent. I think they are the best team in Italy right now. I hope they win the title because they are playing the best soccer, certainly, of any team in Italy. And they're going to be dangerous as this competition continues in the Champions League. They're already through to the round of 16. The other thing that I'm confident it tells us is that Ajax aren't the same team they were last year, right? We're joking about you know this whole Ajax thing. And, and they are an entirely different team, though, than they were in 2021-22, I guess. Now we're in 22-23. They are... They are clearly missing key pieces in pretty much every part of the field, which is exactly what they are, right? Their manager is gone. Their top center back is gone. They're missing pieces in midfield in the attack. They're just not the same team that they were. At this point, they're not likely to get out of the group, or they're just not getting out of the group, period. Yeah, they have a 3% chance, according to 538, of getting out of the group. So they're they're done, basically, unless we have a uh, Kuva-esque sort of fallout and catastrophe from, from other members in this group. But it, it is just a different team. Napoli exposed them over and over again in this game. They exposed them earlier back in, in the previous match day. It's just different, right? Ajax are still a good team, but they're maybe not like Champions League good at this point in, in their current season and in this current cycle. So it turns out if you lose all of your key players uh, and your manager, it could be difficult to rebuild right away. Joe, I'm assuming that maybe you and Ajax will fall back in love next season or the season after. For now, uh, I, I, I welcome you aboard the Napoli bandwagon. We can keep adding uh, that coal to the hype train. Uh, and Graham, since uh, Joe has been noble enough to, to note that he has uh, trouble knowing how to pronounce Brugge, and I struggle with Atleti, uh, why don't you tell us about a player who returned for Napoli? Is that Victor Osimhen? Yeah, you did it! That, that you did it! Good job! <laughs> yes. <laughs> Only took me about three or four years. <laughs> yeah, yeah he, 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 he returns from injury in this game. I actually thought he was pretty wasteful when he came off the bench in the second half. There's one chance in particular when he somehow puts it over from a few yards out, but... Only just back from injury, obviously a bit rusty. And he does score the fourth goal that that kills the game. And obviously putting him back into that Napoli attack, an attack that has coped just fine without him, by the way. So in the six games that he was missing for Napoli, they scored 21 goals, which isn't bad. (laughs) And players like Raspadori and Giovanni Simeone, they have really stepped up. So it's not completely cut and dry that Osimhen will go back straight back into this team. I think eventually that is what will happen. But obviously having him back in, in that in that squad and having him as an option, even if he is coming off the bench over the next couple of games, just makes that Napoli team even stronger. And I think at this point, along with Man City, it's fair to say they are the best team in European football. And I hope it continues over the, host, over the course excuse me, of the season. I, I'm not saying this will happen. 
I do wonder what the betting odds would have been before this Champions League campaign began of getting uh, a Napoli Brugge uh, final. Brugge, I should do the proper one. If we got them in the final, I feel like the odds of that would be, I don't know what, but you'd be making some money if you put a pound or two on that. Yeah, I still feel like you'd be losing money though. Yeah, <laughs> maybe. Yeah, probably. <laughs> I'm. I like Napoli could make Champions League final. I'm still not totally convinced that a town with that many alcoves can make a Champions League <laughs> final. Oh man, I love that movie so much. Uh, Brendan Gleeson hosting SNL this past weekend, uh, and there being a a lovely little cameo during his monologue made my heart happy because they do seem to just be buddies, and I love it. I love that movie. I love the Dubliners as well. That song is terrific. Uh, on that note, uh, we've gone well over an hour, so I can be totally random in my rambling conclusion to this show. But we've talked about pretty much every game that was played in the Champions League this week. Well done to both of you for getting through it all. Graham Ruthven, lovely work by you today, my friend. Thank you, Taylor Rockwell. We did miss out one team. I don't think we mentioned Bayern Munich. Uh, I'll summarise this yeah, quickly. That was the pretty much. In the Champions League, good. Yeah. Bundesliga, bad. Hey, well done. Uh, Joe Lowry, thank you. Anything else to add about Bayern Munich aside from uh, good and then bad? Uh, no. Bayern Munich, uh, Bayern Munich did the Bayern Munich thing in the Champions League, as we expect. There we go. Joe, uh, great work today for you. Thank you. Right back at you. Thank you, my friend. I'm going to go have a lie down, as Graham would say. Uh, Listeners, thanks so much for joining us. Joe, uh, we've got a big thing episode tomorrow, though, don't we? Yeah, so I was joined. We recorded this ahead of time, but I was joined by Backheel's Ariana Cascone to talk NWSL regular season, to look back at sort of the on-field stuff and to look ahead to the playoffs as well. We wanted to shine a light on sort of the the good work that players have done in the midst of really all the fallout and, and crappy stuff that's been exposed by the Sally Yates report. And, and we point to people to good places to go for coverage of that stuff because we believe that's really important as well. But we wanted to, to try to bring back in some of the soccer to, to remind ourselves of how just awesome some aspects of this on-field NWSL season have been in the midst of a lot of crappy stuff too. So yeah, check that out. It'll be out early tomorrow morning. Myself and Ariana Cascone talking NWSL. Lovely. Joe, thank you for that. Ariana, thank you for that. Graham, thank you for your work today. Listeners, thanks for sticking with us. We'll talk to you again very soon. 